0: Hello, everybody. I am Joshua Hatton, and I'm with One Nation Under Whiskey podcast. That's this podcast. I am joined today, and as always, but not always, uh, live... Uh, or in front of 35, soon to be 54 people, Jason Johnston Yellen.
1: Thank you. Just so you know, I am always live when we record it, Joshua. We just don't right? have an audience of people watching us and listening and hanging on our every <laughs> word.
0: <laughs> so we run a, well, we do a few things. Actually, Jason has a, a fun shirt here that, that says, what it is, what we do, that we do. And now this, this is sort of our tagline, which sprang from the fact that I can't properly... I don't have a proper command of the English language. <laughs> that was not rehearsed. That was beautifully said yeah, and perfectly. Right? That was well done. And uh, so what, what we started doing when we, when we launched the podcast is we wanted to tell people what we do, because beyond running a podcast, we, we do all sorts of things. And I was trying to urge Jason to let people know all that we do what it is what we do and it came out just like that.
1: So we run an independent bottling company called Single Cask Nation. Uh, We're available online and we're now in retail stores. Uh, We started that last year. We run three whiskey festivals called Whiskey Jubilee. We're in New York, Chicago and tomorrow night will be our third annual event in Seattle. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, We also run Whiskey Tours of Scotland called Whiskey Geek Tours. Absolutely. And three of the people who are going on my May tour uh, are with us tonight, so thank you to them. Natalie's not even listening. Uh, Moving on. Um, And then we also run this podcast, uh, where oftentimes Joshua will be in Connecticut, I'll be in Virginia, or we'll be somewhere on the road. And uh, we put out a, a new podcast every two weeks. And we try to be interesting. We always try to be geeky. And tonight yes, will be a super geeky episode.
0: Yeah, I'm re- well, I'm excited about it for a few reasons. Just the fact that usually it's me in my basement. Sounds weird. Sorry. It's not, it's not like a torture room or anything. Or is it? Big bucket wow. of grease beside them. <laughs> And, you know, just sitting with whiskeys and we're sipping along as we're having a conversation. And typically what we're going to do is, is we'll go out and we'll interview producers, uh, distillers, blenders, brand ambassadors, you name it. We've actually had Matt Hoffman on the podcast thrice. Thanks. Three times? Sounds appropriate for yeah. Matt Hoffman. Yeah. He is the masterman. And what we'll do is we'll record a podcast remotely and then insert it into the conversation. But this is going to be from beginning to end...
1: I also have to tell you when I left Virginia it was winter time and when I arrived in Seattle it was the middle of spring and my allergies absolutely caked my butt today and so I am totally tripping off my balls on Benadryl right now and so I'm not entirely predictable this evening Um, and so Joshua if you see me going off piste send me some signal cut my mic uh, whatever it has to be no okay that's perfect, no. okay. <laughs> Ooh.
0: So, so there's a reason why we brought this podcast here. Jason and I, we actually discovered Westland, oh yeah, when was it? Oh, it was 2011? That can be right. 2012? They're probably right. Yeah, 2012. So before we started Single Cast Nation and Whiskey Jubilee and all that, Jason and I were bloggers. And so I ran a blog called Jumalt and Jason had GoodScotchDrink.com, and and Matt Hoffman and company reached out to us to send us samples. And at this point, we were actually getting out of blogging because we were about to start all of our businesses. And so we we had started saying no to all samples. For whatever reason, we said yes. And a week later, in the mail comes this beautiful wooden box, the Wesselin label on it, and you open it, and there are these samples just sitting on nice hay. Everything was just perfect. I-, I said to Steve way back, Steve Holly's in the back of the room, and I said to
1: Steve in the very beginning, these boxes are the perfect gerbil caskets. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, I have a full collection. I own no gerbils, uh, but I have a full collection Not of anymore. these gerbil caskets. Uh, in case my kids ever get gerbils that die. The hay is beautiful. Uh, I could send them out in a Valhalla funeral. Uh, so kudos on the boxes.
0: Does that involve flaming arrows? Yes, it
1: does. That's it does. exactly right. The hay just catches.
0: You do that? No. No? Okay. So, so, so uh, they reached out to us so that, that we could review their whiskeys, which we did. But at the same time, we said, you know, guys... We have this company that we're starting called Single Cast Nation. We're independent bottlers. We, does, do you guys know what independent bottler is? Raise your hand if you do not know what an independent bottler is. OK. So in summary, an independent bottler is a company that isn't a producer. We don't make whiskey. We go to distilleries, be it Westland, be it in Scotland, Glen Murray, Aaron, you name it, Kilhoman. And we select whiskey to bottle under our label, Single Cast Nation. The tradition actually started way back when. You, you may have heard of someone called Johnny Walker. Maybe not. Uh, but Johnny Walker was one of the first independent bottlers. He would go to distilleries, buy whiskey from them, put them in his bottle. Right? So, so anyway, we said, hey, we're an independent bottler. Would you guys be interested in selling us casks? We did. And they said? Yes. <laughs>
1: We wouldn't be standing here today yeah. doing all this nonsense, but they said yes a few years ago, and it's been fantastic.
0: Yeah, and since then, we've bottled five different Westland whiskies. And in part, because of Westland, we brought the Whiskey Jubilee here. And when we run the Whiskey Jubilee... Oh, that's nice. The, co- the compressor went off.
1: It'll come back on.
0: All right. So we brought it here, and we do Whiskey Jubilee Festival bottlings and featured Westland... Twice. We did. Yep. And I, I was
1: going to circle back to that with Matt when he comes out. Okay. Uh, just very brief part on that one
0: Matt's here okay. with us. Can you tell everybody what we're going to be doing today that the conversation is about? I feel like this is a test. Because um, I don't really remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot he's on Benadryl. <laughs> I swear to God, the Benadryl is <laughs> mental. I'm just having so, a time. so the reason that we brought this here is we love the shit out of Matt Hoffman. That's true. Right? Official whiskey industry term, loving the shit out of Matt Hoffman. (laughs) You know, I I was in Boston just two weeks ago and Matt Hoffman came out to talk about the core range plus some single casks. And watching Matt talk in front of a crowd about Westland, about malt, about yeast, about casks, about Washington State the passion just oozes from his pores. Not not visibly. I think that passion powers his beard. (laughs) Do you not think it's the other way around? So okay. So this is this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna bring Matt and company out to talk about really why we're here. We, We we wanted to highlight Westland and we said, Westland, what do you want to talk about? What's the story that you want to share with the crowd here and also with our podcast listeners. And, uh, and they came up with a good idea, and I hope, uh, I hope Matt doesn't mind. I'm going to put him on the spot, and I'm going to make him talk about stuff. Okay. So without further ado, Matt Hoffman, co-founder and
1: master distiller, Westland Distillery. Ooh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I love the shit out of you, man. <laughs> you said you were going to come in punching the air like Rocky. What happened? That, that didn't work like that. <laughs> And and so you're not too lonely out there. Uh, We also have Nick Hepenstall, Operations Manager, Odin Brewery in Tukwila. Thanks for joining us, Nick.
0: And thank you for the beer before it's delicious.
1: Uh, we also have Matt Skinny Roberts, Special Projects Coordinator, Black Raven Brewing in Redmond. Don't know where he gets the nickname Skinny from. Uh, and then last but not least, we have Steve Griesel, the owner at Betts Family Winery
0: in Woodenville. Cheers, Steve. So we need to thank Matt. We need to thank Steve Hawley. Howley? How's it? Howley? That's,
2: yeah, as, as weird as you can possibly pronounce it.
0: That's it. Howley. Howley. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Okay. Uh, for putting together this panel because I we kind of handed the football off to them uh to to come up with the platform we're kind of easygoing guys for the most part for the most part um and so they put together this panel to 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 talk about malt right to talk about casks so if you wouldn't mind i'm gonna i'm gonna put you on the spot i'm already here so (laughs) (laughs) tell everybody what we're talking about today what we're going over
1: you're, you're, just so you know, you're now the second person he's asked to do this. I don't think he knows. I don't want to do uh, shit. Can I, can I use the Benadryl excuse also? Is that... Uh, uh,
2: first of all, thank you everybody for coming. Good to see many of you again. Uh, so for us, what we wanted to talk about was really the fundamental raw ingredients which go into whiskey. And that can go a number of different ways. Um, but for us, you know, there's only really four things that go into single malt. It's malted barley, yeast, water, and casks. And our approach to these raw ingredients is very different from the rest of the business, uh, the rest of the single malt whiskey business. There's a lot of great whiskey that comes from Scotland, but we draw a ton of inspiration from the brewing world and from the Mm winemaking world. Mm -hmm. And so what we wanted to do is to bring in, literally, brewers and winemakers, to be able to speak um, to these ingredients, whether it's the malt or the casks, from a perspective that's different from our own, and we can kind of look at it and, and see where our sources of inspiration begin to come from. Okay, right. I hope that's
0: right. No, I think, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was convincing.
2: That's all that really matters.
0: <laughs> so that's great. So in front of everybody, you've got, you've got three different whiskeys, and we have, um, let me see, we have Westland American Oak, which, Correct me if I'm wrong, that that was your initial flagship, is that correct? That is correct, yes. And in addition to that, you've got Sherrywood and Peated. Not in front of them, no. No, 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 no. but your core range. Yes, the core range is, yeah, the American Oak, Sherrywood, and Peated. Okay. And then next to that, we have sort of the deconstructed American Oak. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So what we wanted to show you guys, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain into American Oak, American Oak is our flagship whiskey. Um, it's, it's not just our flagship whiskey because it's been around for the longest period of time. It's our bestseller, but specifically because it really speaks to what it is that we are trying to do, which is to make an American single malt and not a copy of Scottish whiskey in America. And that's, that's a pretty fundamental difference. And so, again, by looking at these base-raw ingredients, malt yeast water cask, We say, how can we bring these raw ingredients fully to life Uh, and also in a way that reflects where we come from, both as an American producer and and being in the Pacific Northwest. So what we have, and actually all the whiskeys that are in front of you now, um, you have something we call the five malt recipe. And this is something where we're gonna, when we talk to the brewers about this sort of stuff, this is where that inspiration comes in, is brewers get to use these darker malts all the time. So if you think about porters and stouts and amber ales, and I'm sure all sorts of other things that these guys could name, what makes those beers different is the malt, is the roasting of that malted barley. Mm -hmm. Um, That's with, I think, three exceptions all time in Scottish whiskey is never practiced. And we said, well, why? Why is it that? Sure. Nobody uses any of these things and there was never really a good answer to that question. So we just started doing it. We said, Okay, here's <laughs> we see all these craft brewers and that's actually not even a craft brewing thing. It's been around I mean Guinness has been around for two hundred and fifty years or something like that. Sure. So we said, Why do brewers get to have all the fun with malt? Whereas every single distillery in Scotland, almost, is using literally the same strain of barley, the same varietal of barley, malted exactly the same way. So again, well, why? We don't need to think that way. We think we draw that inspiration from the brewing world, so we use five different types of malted barley. Everything that we ferment, again, everything that you have here on the table in front of you, everything that actually that we've ever released, because it's the only yeast strain we use, is ferments with a Belgian Saison Brewer's yeast um, that uses, uh, the Saison strain gives a lot of citrus notes, spice, red berry fruits, and again, drawing the comparison to Scotland, they're basically saying, okay, here's a strain of distiller's yeast, which ferments very quickly, and it's fine. but they're also saying that the yeast strain doesn't matter or fermentation won't matter. And so we said, well, why? Brewers and winemakers know that the yeast strains matter. So why would we not think the same way? And so again, that's the other source of inspiration. And then the last big thing is the cask. And for us looking at casks, using high quality casks, new American white oak, uh, lots of, uh, all the casks we use are air dried. All the wood is air dried 18 to 24 months. Uh, Actually, the two whiskeys that are on your right, the two single casks, those are air dried for 24 months with a heavy toast and a light char. And so the end result is, and that's, those aren't used in Scotland at all. A new American oak cask is used by bourbon producers, but with high quality air dried oak and, um, and slow grown oak, you don't see that at all in this business. So the end result with these whiskeys and with our American oak is something that tastes distinctly different from Scottish whiskey. And that's, that's the intention, is to make something where we highlight the raw ingredients and, you know, I was classically educated in Scottish whiskey making through a Scottish university, and they didn't talk anything at all about roasted malts, or brewer's yeast strains or high-quality oak, what that, what those things mean. It,
0: is that just because it's tradition? It, that would be outside of traditional practices? That's, that's
2: what they would like to say. The, the, the honest truth is that, you know, if, if, if they said, okay, we've been using this strain of malted barley, for the past 300 years. That sounds very romantic and everything, but the truth of it is that every seven to 10 years, a new varietal of barley is bred that yields 3% more than the last one, and then that's the one that's used. And the whiskey has been treated, it's treated itself like a commodity business. And again, remember I'm saying this, there's a lot of great whiskey out there, so please don't get me wrong on this. But what if we began to think about it in the way that these guys think about it, right? The way that the brewers and winemakers think about it. And so, you know, when I looking when I was looking for oak quality information, I didn't find it in a whiskey textbook. I found it from a winemaking textbook, genuinely from a winemaking textbook. When I wanted to talk about malt flavor, I found it from a brewing textbook. So what we have in front of you guys right now is our American oak expression. We're trying to balance that malty flavor, that kind of nutty, chocolatey uh, pastry note. You're getting some of that fruitiness, um, also with the caramel and vanilla notes. But what we have uh, going from left to right, left to right, so. The one in the middle uh, is a single cask. That's more malt-forward. So you can taste the difference in what a more malt-forward spirit is like. And then the the whiskey on your right is more cask-forward. So you can begin to taste what those differences are between uh, the malt component and the cask component. The thing that's really exciting about these, these casks were filled at exactly the same time. They're exactly the same age, filled into exactly the same type of cask. And this is something that people don't tend to understand a lot is, how different each cask of whiskey
0: is. So, so walk us through it, if, if you could. And maybe you can't, because magic happens in casks. That that's my understanding. A, There's a lot of magic. It's there. a lot of magic. Uh, so you rolled the D20, <laughs> and then you got... So, so you've got one that's more malt forward, right? That's an 18 on the D20. And then you've got one that's cask forward, but it's the same wood. Is it the same distal? Is it both of them or five malt? Correct. Yeah, both of them are a five-mile recipe. So from a logistic standpoint, that sounds like it would be a pain in, the, pain in the ass to come up with something that's consistently your American oak because I'm sure you've got some sort of ratio that is, okay, we need this much multi forward whiskey to be married with this much cask-forward whiskey. How do you manage something like that? Yeah, this, this
2: is the great trick in whiskey making that I went back to Scotland a few years ago to find the textbook for this, which I was absolutely sure existed, and it definitely does not. And nobody agrees on what the right procedure is for putting these things together and tracking it. Um, and the best it- information that I got from from blenders in Scotland was come up with your own system and then keep it consistent. We've carried that forward through today. But it makes it so important that we taste, we really nose and taste every single cask. And a lot of people think that's crazy, but even... Um, you know, the big distilleries, so for example, Macallan, they will sure. go through a blender, at Macallan will nose 500 whiskies a day because they need to go through each one. And that's how important it is. Even if the wood is from, you know, we just had this really great experience. We were out in, uh, in Missouri, visiting our, our cooperage out there. And we went out and we saw into the, into the forest, excuse me. And we were talking to a logger there. He's cutting down a tree. And when he cut down the tree, he showed us the stump. And he said, okay, so imagine half of the stump is looking roughly like half of a circle. The other half of the stump is kind of oblong. It has this kind of, not, not like super weird bulge in it. Ah, easy. I'm just, I know, I'm running into easy. trouble here with these guys. But the point is, is that it's, it's, a, it's, it's, imagine like half of an ellipse. And the logger was pointing to it and he said, okay, the reason why this half of the tree was growing at a faster rate, hence the ellipse shape, was because it has, it's down um, the hill a little bit from the other half of the tree. It's got much deeper soil, whereas the other part of the tree is sitting on really bare, rocky ground. And so oh, even right? within the same tree, this has wow. blew my mind, within the same tree, you can see these differences that's done by terroir. And people think, okay, if you got the, you know, wood from the same tree, surely yeah. it would taste the same. But no, it, it really isn't. It's, it's a fascinating thing. So it means you have to track and taste each cask.
0: It sounds kind of like the uh, Buffalo Trace, the, the Oak Project. Absolutely. That was great. That was a really cool thing that they yeah. did. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. Um, so I, I do have a
1: question. Are we allowed to drink the whiskey yet? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh,
2: please drink the whiskey, everybody. Cheers. Uh, thank you all for coming.
0: <laughs> Cheers. Just the first one? Or no, can you could no, drink all of them. Oh, that's, you're easy.
1: I am easy, yeah. Uh, wow. So, so the question I was going to ask you is, uh, the third cask that we bottled for you for Single Cast Nation is two years old, it's your five malt mash bill, and it's new charred oak maturation. And when I'm on the road pouring it for people, I always say this is uh, an American single malt matured like a bourbon. Uh, and half the time I'm saying that just to get people's attention so that they'll actually be like, oh, bourbon, that's interesting stuff. It, uh, enough of this bourbon, as Joshua's shirt rightly says. I'm going to pivot to my beer people. Oh, beer. If I'm, if I'm,
3: yeah.
1: if i <laughs> naked skinny, so quite, a <laughs> quite a pivot, quite a pivot.
0: Nick and skinny, not naked skinny. <laughs> Nick, good, Nick yeah. and skinny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, naked, <laughs> so I'm, skinny skinny
1: I'm not getting I'm paid for that. <laughs> 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 Surprise. Um, uh, given that brewers and Matt rightly said this a moment ago, brewers get to play around with barley so much more uh, than distillers do, and certainly on groups that I've taken over to Scotland, and they've asked leading questions at distilleries about how much flavor comes from your barley. And invariably people at distilleries will say, oh, there's no flavor coming from the barley. It's just sugar. What are you looking for in the barley when you're
4: selecting it, brewing it, turning it into beer? Well, I personally, we um, we look for a number of different things, obviously. And uh, you know, one of the primary is is yield just like you're talking mm. about in a big, large <laughs> commodity? Uh, but we have to pay attention to That's the what least we're getting romantic off of it. it is you absolutely, the yeah, okay, least okay. romantic, but okay, it's uh, it is part of the truth. Uh, but we also are looking for specific flavors that are coming through in in uh, in, in the final product of the beer and. Um, you know quite honestly, I did not believe that when they came around and saying that they 're doing all these different things with chocolate malts and whatnot. I thought that was a bunch of b s and <laughs> there would be nothing and then uh, immediately it was apparent that they, they actually did have uh they're, they're, you know something going on there there was actually flavors coming through after being distilled and and uh and whatnot even before it gets put into a, a cask um, but for us we're we 're looking for um you know a, a wide range of flavors that 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 will bring forward, uh, you know, enough character in your final product to um, make a platform for all of the other things that are going on in beer as well to to kind of be built upon. Um, the barley really is one of the well, there's not that many ingredients, but it's one of the fundamentals that um, that allows you to carry in your hops and allows you to like uh, showcase your yeast flavors and. Um, and sometimes that means using a bunch of light barleys that will be basically a blank slate because you want yeah. to showcase a hop forward beer. Um, other times it's using a bunch of light bar- barleys that have been roasted in specific ways to uh, give yourself you know more mouthfeel because your super hoppy beer may just taste nothing but but uh, you know a bunch of hop cones. And uh, other times you're making stouts and darker beers where you're. You're picking those darker roast um, barleys specifically for the chocolate flavors to uh, help balance out some caramel flavors that you have, and you want it to actually taste lighter by adding, uh, you know, a, a more bitter malt uh, character okay. back into the beer um, to to help balance out the the sweetness. Um, uh, if you want to talk about your uh, your approach,
3: yeah, um, and to me it really goes to what style of beer you're trying to Mm -hmm. brew. I'll touch on what he said, you know, when you're going for stouts you want something that's gonna not just give you that flavor but maybe not too much roasty, not too much coffee, not too much chocolate. You gotta find a good balance. But You also want to make sure that you're choosing something that doesn't have if you want a clear beer that has, doesn't have a huge amount of protein, because that means it's really hard to precipitate that out, or you have to filter it, and filtering, which is actually what I did today, does strip some hop oils and flavors and body out of the beer. How do you do the filtering? So there's actually a couple different ways to do it. There's a centrifuge, which is generally the preferred way for a larger brewery. They are super expensive, and it's... What it is, it's a centrifuge. It spins the liquid and pulls everything out of it through screen. Gotcha. Um, mm. There's DE filters, which is basically like ground up seashell, obsidian, and you put those onto metal plates and pass the beer through that.
5: Yeah. And okay. there's
3: also plate filters, which have um, cloth or membranes in them down to certain microns. Okay.
0: We are nerding out hardcore right now. <laughs> this is this is glorious. So, just a, just a quick question. I'm sorry. No. So you're talking about your your filtration. I'm wondering, whiskey is just beer that's been distilled, right? You've taken that beer. You're taking it another step. Are you doing any filtration before your war, I'm sorry. Before your wash goes into your wash still.
2: No. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we do. Okay. So, there's a couple things that happen naturally. One, we get the yeast to sediment out. Um, a lot of that happens naturally, especially with the yeast strains that we're using, whereas in Scotland, you just kind of pump it in and in a slurry, it's all going to continue in. Um, so our yeast kind of settles a little bit, so we do have that, but that's like a natural, that's like a natural thing that we have. Um, but there's all these other little things in the process, ending third water temperatures that we use for, we use a batch, sparge and water system. And depending upon how high that temperature is, means you'll extract, more flavors, more oiliness, more proteins, um, or if you have a lower temperature, you extract less, and that all factors in. So a lot of the stuff actually mashing
1: doesn't really get the respect that it deserves. It adds a ton to flavor. So so I'm gonna ask you a a question in a moment about your distillation, but I want to go back to Skinny. I derailed you with the filtration uh, question, just because I really did want to geek out on it. Uh Um, And so continue
3: the point that you were making. Yeah, I also derailed, so I Um, apologize. So one thing, actually, I'm probably going to put a question to you. I'm not (laughs) 100% sure on the distillation process. But another thing you're looking for, uh, along with mash temperatures, but from your grain, is body in the beer. Mm -hmm. Um, That comes from temperature. That comes from, again, proteins and sugars Mm. that you can extract that the yeast will not eat. And that's another thing that I'm not sure actually plays into because I'm not sure how much the distillation strips out of the body.
2: Yeah, the distillation will stretch out, or sorry, will, will eliminate the um, uh, the kind of starch-derived uh, body, whether it's starch or sugar, but when you get body in a in whiskey, you're getting, one, oils, oil compounds that are coming through, so... Uh, Great examples like bourbon, Like if you get a cask-strength bourbon, really oily, really viscous, a lot of that is corn as an ingredient, has more oil than barley, but the biggest thing is the processing, which carries much more of the oils through. And the other big thing is the cask, and the cask is going to add body, it's going to add sugars, a number of other things. The difference is, is whether that whiskey is then chill-filtered or not, and chill-filtering strips out a lot of that body because whiskey will haze and that freaks people out. So most companies will chill filter the product and then it never hazes again. Below 46% alcohol, just Correct. so that people know when they're looking at the yes. labels. <laughs> but, you know, so the whiskey doesn't haze and people don't freak out and that means they can bottle it at the lowest ABV, but you're also eliminating, a ton- I mean, literally the flavors that are causing, or the things that are causing the haze are flavor compounds in the body. So you miss a lot. So like, you know, we don't do any chill filtration at all. We don't believe in it. What's the lowest ABV you bottle at? 46. Mm-hmm. Nobody's, nobody's quite sure on what the exact percentage is. I've heard 43, 45. Uh, I've heard 46. So we just we stay at 46, yeah. and, and then you don't get a chill haze. If it does haze, so if you get a bottle of Westland, or actually, if you get something cast strength, if you stick it in the freezer, if you're out playing in the snow or something, uh, which I would encourage you to do, um, <laughs> and it hazes, when it gets back to room temperature, that haze goes away. But the difference is below that strength at, like 40, you know, at 40% ABV, if you took that and stuck it out in the snow and then it got back to room temperature, it would not change. So the haze would be stuck forever. So that's why you see a lot of distilleries at 45, 46, 47. And then they
1: don't chill filter because they know that that's not going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, still with skinny, uh, just as you're talking proteins there, uh, one of the things that really frustrates me in drinking a beer is when there's no head, right? And- <laughs> That was for you. Um, <laughs> Thank you.
0: That um, was for everybody. In the room. It, it is March
1: 14th. So that's an applicable <laughs> joke. Yeah, yeah. Everyone in the room is over 21. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so, so I see with a lot of new breweries, a pint gets poured, it gets delivered, and it's just a flat liquid with no head. What's missing in that beer when there's no head? Or when you start with a very slight amount of head, and as you're drinking it down, there's no lacing in the glass and there's no head. The head kind of disappears
3: on you. A lot of that depends on the style of beer, but the first thing that I'm going to talk about is hop oils. If it's a hoppy beer... I do like it when you talk about hot oils.
1: Please continue. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. hop.
3: Hop. 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 Sorry, hop oils. Or say it's a stout, and they've added a lot of coffee or cocoa nibs or vanilla bean. All those oils, if that beer is not filtered, will diminish the head retention.
0: Oh, that's like when you have a beer that's... You know, billowing over. You do this. You put your finger in it. Right. Exactly. I know exactly what you're that talking. is yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is actually the oil, scientific yeah, reason. Yeah. Okay. That oh, that's stops interesting. That.
3: Um, it could also be improper carbonation, uh, low sure. carbonation level, sure. or uh, the new. Well, I guess it's not new, but the big trend right now is northeast style IPAs, which yes. are basically milkshakes.
0: Go easy. Mm-hmm. I'm from Connecticut. Go.
3: They go hard. Right, they go don't hard. go easy. Yeah. No, no. Go hard. Tell oh, it like it is. Yeah, he <laughs> he didn't want me to go easy earlier. Uh, <laughs>
5: nice. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. yeah. hot. Like, Come okay, on. We're listening up here. Yes. Uh, okay.
3: I don't even around have around any whiskey. You guys have got whiskey? Uh, behind. Yeah, you got whiskey. Uh, whiskey. Should be drinking whiskey. Y'all are all talking about whiskey, telling them to drink. You got whiskey behind you. Uh, it's on the table. Yeah, those, that's probably some of the main reasons, is oils really can cause that, or a lack of protein. Sorry, awesome. what was the Northeast IPA thing? Oh, uh, a lot of those won't have head retention, yeah. because they have so many uh, late-edition hops, either into the Whirlpool, or so many dry hops, that the hop oil that they extract just okay. pretty much negates it. Kills it, yeah. Okay. Do you people
1: know what I'm talking about? Do, do you feel the same thing, see the same thing when you go to brewery? Cool, I'm just glad I'm not alone here. Okay,
0: good, 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 good. Um, yeah. I I had a question, if you guys didn't mind, to go... And this one's for you, Steve. Can I interject one second? Uh, Yeah.
1: Any regular (laughs) listeners know that Josh forever backs it up. Makes a point, backs it up, backs Mm -hmm. it up. Let me just back it up for one second. Uh, If you're on uh, the Twitter machine, uh, as we say, if you reside in Twatterton, uh, please, uh, you can send us questions. Uh, Joshua is on the Twitter machine this oh, evening Okay. Yeah, I, I don't have it on my phone It's nonsense, right. who does that? I hate uh, it too <laughs> and, and so if you want to tweet questions, we'll, we'll answer them We'll ask them to the panel uh, We also have an audience mic here uh, Which is picking up all your guffaws of laughter And rounds of applause So thank you for those okay, nice. On cue, well done. well done Hold on, hold on <laughs> that, was some, that was some wonderful fishing. Okay. Put, that was beautiful. Put I'm, the applause card I'm down. I'm impressed by myself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if, if you have a question, you don't want to reside in Twatterton, uh, if you just start to come down, uh, we'll give you the mic and you can ask a question Where as
0: well. Where can they twat- tweet at us?
1: I have literally no idea. Okay. Twatterton.com. It's,
0: uh... No. Joshua. <laughs> 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 you dig. Okay, so it, it is at One Nation Whiskey, and it's whiskey without an E one-nation whiskey without an E. Oh, just a big sigh. Yeah. Uh,
1: and then the other thing I was going to say for, for both our, our audience in attendance and for our listeners, uh, we're obviously recording live in a working distillery. Yeah. And so the various hisses and twirls and... Uh, occasion- those, are, those are supposed to be happening, right? to be clear. Occasional fires. Um, Not supposed to be no. happening. No, that those doesn't are all happen. normal. Um, and so, if there's any kind of uh, noise feedback that anyone's hearing on this uh, recorded podcast, it's the fact that things are live. We are doing it live. What does it mean? Play me out. What does it mean?
0: <laughs> there's like not a person in this room that got that reference. Oh, right. One, two. <laughs> All right, three. Hey, my people. We'll go for falafel <laughs> later. <laughs> so, Steve, I had a question for you. Uh, up up until now, we've talked about distillation. We've talked about Fermentation, brewing, different kinds of barley and yeast and so on and so forth. But we haven't talked about casks. And you and I were talking a, a little earlier about your relationship with Westland and how you're giving them casks to mature their whiskey. So, you know, people might think, why do you have a wine producer at a podcast that's called One Nation Under Whiskey? It's because the wine world has a symbiotic relationship with the whiskey world. Whiskey producers need casks. Uh, bourbon, we need new charred oak. But Westland, other single malt producers, you're, you're using new charred oak, but they're also using ex-wine casks, ex-sherry casks, uh, and so on, even ex-bourbon casks. So, Steve, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're looking for in your wood. Uh <laughs>
1: Thank you for saying that exactly as a mouthful of water. And uh,
0: I tried not to do the spit take in the background there. Yeah, you're not supposed to spit. I, I, I had heard, and I forget where I heard this or read it in multiple places, that at least in whiskey, when it comes to your flavor, now we're not, maybe not talking about Westland here, but in the Scotch whiskey world, the majority of your flavor, about 70-75% comes from the cask. So you, a wine producer, are seasoning those casks for the whiskey world. But talk to us about what you look for in casks for your wine.
6: Sure, well, in um, the world of wine, uh, we use both French oak and, and American oak. In our particular winery, we, we use 100% French oak. So that's very, very different to, to the world of whiskey. Um, and there's a lot of different coopers that we use. So coopers are, you know, and, and uh, in our, in our particular case, we use eight different Coopers, and then we use about three different barrel types from them. So that's 24 different um, outcomes that we're going to get. And then over, uh, overlaid on that, of course, you've got you know, all the different grapes, right? Cabernet, Merlot, Petit Verdot, uh, Syrah, you know, Pinot Noir, to name a, a few of the, the key ones in this part of the world um, when it comes to Reds.
0: When you say I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. When you say eight different barrel types, are you talking about different wood, different size casks, different toasting, charring? What do you What do you mean? When you All talk those about that? exactly.
6: Yeah. So that's uh, you know, if you look at the famous, um, cooper's uh, out of France exactly. So they could be from different forests. Yeah. I mean, made by the same Cooper, but, but um, aged in exactly the same way, two different forests, completely different outcome. Right, right. Um, different sizes. You know, we, we in, in, in uh, wine, we start really 225 liters or 59 gallons is the main one that we use. But we go in our winery, we've gone all the way up to 500 liters now. Because we've realized, that, by the way, a 500 litre has only 38% of the impact of a 225 because of the, the surface-to-volume to ratio. Huh. And so we use that for Syrah now because, because Syrah just can't take um, you know, that amount of new wood. So in wine, we have to be very, very careful. The, the big thing that happens in wine, um, the, 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 the symbiotic nature of wine and, 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 and uh, the, the, the barrel is that the barrel contains these beautiful tannins, and so do do red wines. That tannin chain actually links together to form a longer tannin chain, and that's what gives you the mouthfeel in wine. So that's what we're looking for, that's what we're looking to do. What we're not looking to do is have the barrel basically just be so overt and take over the wine so that your wine tastes like a piece of uh, French furniture because <laughs> that might you know, be nice for something else, but, but in wine that's terrible. So it's that incredible balance. You know, how long are you going to keep it in oak? Um, how, what percentage of new oak are you going to use? Uh, which barrels? Because different barrels are, you know, are much more overt. I mean, if you use a, a barrel like Gumba, they, they are in your face out there. versus a Sig Moreau or a Sylvain, which might, might be a lot um, more restrained. But in general, French oak is much, much more restrained, tighter grained. It has, I think, about ten times less vanilla extract um, than uh, an American oak barrel. So the the significant it's the significant differences.
2: Yeah, I would also add so that what you were talking about there, Steve, with the 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 balance between the wine, the actual character from the grapes, and the oak. That's a huge source of inspiration for us, and something that's been super super frustrating to see in our business is equating maturation with oak extract, oak flavor, and driving it to the point where people are maturing things in super, super small casks. Every once in a while you can taste something that actually works out okay. But by and large, not only you're, you're they're adding oak chips and oak spirals and pressurizing things and and not fundamentally respecting the raw ingredients. And that's mm. and that's because really there isn't a fundamental respect for The grain that goes into whiskey, they say, you know, it doesn't. The flavor doesn't matter. matter. So it's all about the
1: cask. Can I ask you my question about distillation? Yes. Joshua says no. No, he's always keeping me down. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, So, so I was talking to somebody on Monday night. We're talking about Westland. We're saying great things, and uh, and the person, as we always do, all good
0: things, all good things.
1: And the person was saying, yeah, Matt Hoffman, he he distills. Two and a bit times, and, and uh, right, and, and I, I was talking about know, Springbank is two and a half, and Hazelburn is triple, but where does your two and a bit times kind of fit into this? It's this, a bit like Mortlock this, is your this process. This is
2: amazing that you're asking this now for a, a podcast. This is very, very complex. So I need my other hand. I have a
1: glass of whiskey in one hand. Thank <laughs> you, Nick. Two whiskeys for Nick. All right. Ready. Are you ready? Are you sure? I'm ready for two and a bit times distillation. Everybody? Is everybody ready?
2: Take a deep breath. Here we go. And you can breathe out as well, just until we get to a point where it's uncomfortable.
0: How many times do we do that?
2: As many times as you want. (laughs) In fact, I would encourage it as many times as you want.
1: (laughs) Suddenly a yoga class at Westland Distillery. They don't all
2: have to be deep breaths. Um, Hot yoga. You can also continue to drink your whiskey. Okay, so here's the deal. Is we have a distillation process that is, if you wanted to tie it to, most similar to in a distillery in Scotland, it would be Mortlock. And that is because we, we have, starting with the wash run, so our, our uh, wash, at the end of fermentation, eight ish percent alcohol by volume. That goes into our wash still, bring that up to a boil, the distillate begins to come across as it does at every distillery in Scotland at the spirit safe around 50-ish percent alcohol by volume, 45, 50. That begins to drop off as with pot distillation. Once we get, so eventually in Scotland that will start at 50%, get down to 1%, that's where they shut the still off. The average ABV of that liquid is 25%, okay? Gotcha. Everybody with us Chips so him. far, because yeah. if you're not, God help us all. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> this is gonna be rough. So okay, so what we do actually is we make a cut. In our wash run, which doesn't happen at almost any other distillery. I reference like I think Springbank is the same. So at 15% ABV at the Spirit Safe, we take the first set of liquid from 50 down to 15, that's averaging 35%. And then we take the second set of liquid from 15 down to 1. And that goes off to a separate tank. Confusingly, extra confusingly, <laughs> we begin mixing American and Scottish terminology. So <laughs> just just to make it a little bit more interesting. So we call that first liquid low wines, uh-huh. and we call that second liquid faints. Okay. Yeah. yeah right? As one does. So yeah. so our every wash run normally that we produce is like that. So then we take that liquid. So we've taken, we've taken two distillations to empty a fermentation vessel. We recycle the tails back from the spirit run, but not the heads. Okay. In Scotland, they would recycle both back. Right. Yep. So we're recycling the tails back. So now we've got basically two parts, low wines, one part tails, all at 35% alcohol by volume. And then we cut it with water. And we cut it with water. Did anybody see that coming? We cut it with water to, ready for this, to promote phase separation, hydro oh, nice. separation of phase fatty acids and fatty acid esters. So,
5: yeah.
2: think about it this way. If you take oil and water and you mix it together, well, they don't mix. The oil will float on top, right? You got you know balsamic vinegar and, and olive oil, um, you know that the oil is always kind of floating on top. So, that's the same thing will happen uh, in our low wines tank. There's a lot of fatty acids, a lot of oils, and there's this like little thing in, in every Scottish whiskey making textbook, all five of them, that says don't let the ABV of your low wines get above 30% because then it all dissolves into solution.
0: How are we doing, Joshua? You look like you want to ask a no, 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 no. I'm taking it all in, man. Okay, good. No, this is, you've, you've explained this before and I, would, I had a lot in me at that time, and now I'm good. Keep going, this is great. <laughs> okay, all right.
2: <laughs> so we're taking this liquid, we're diluting it to basically promote these oils to float to the top. Why do we want to do this? Because if all of those oils go into the spirit still, basically when it starts distilling out, when it distills through, the liquid will come out blue. Instead of clear, whatever every distillate comes out clear, it'll come out blue. Because oh. there's all of these oils that are going to come through yeah. in such
1: high concentrations. Yeah, I just saw this on Moonshiners. And these two hillbillies shit themselves when their distillate came out blue. And the guy was kind of like, it still tastes all right. And the other one was like, yeah, but we can't sell blue liquor. And it was like... The fact that you watch Moonshiners is just fantastic. I was on a just plane. Fantastic. I was on a plane. Yeah, huh. Was uh, it with that,
0: that old shirtless guy that wears the overalls? No, is that that's the
1: Popcorn Sutton. He's dead, I'm
0: afraid. Oh, right. Because yep. he tried the blue. They did. Yeah. They
1: buried him in a Westland sample casket.
0: <laughs> with the gerbils. <laughs> a small guy.
1: So, yeah, blue blue liquor, yeah. Totally.
2: I've seen Great. this. Yep. Blue on liquor. Okay, so, so we don't want this to happen. We... we add water because normally in Scotland, it's gonna be below 30% as it's at 25%. So we add water to bring it down to 27.5%. And this process, these oils float to the top, it's kind of disgusting, creamy blue looking oil slick. So we draw from the bottom of the tank and that goes into the spirit still. So when it goes in the spirit still, we basically run this process very similar to how it's done in Scotland, Mm -hmm. heads, hearts, tails, as the American terminology, of course, and then we take another cut. We call that the feints. Again, mixing the terminology there. So four fractions of distillate instead of three. Now, the hearts we keep, that's what we dilute, put that into casks, away it goes. The tails, as we said before, that goes back into the low wines for the next run. But then we take the feints from the wash run, and then the heads and the feints from the spear run. Everybody still with me so far? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, yeah, I'm sure it does. So. Um, I'm tripping on Benadryl. Okay, yeah, so Benadryl is making this much more exciting. So this is, I'm totally so, into So we take this liquid, and basically what we have here is that it faints from 15% ABV down to 1 at the spirit safe in the wash still. It's full of these really oily compounds. And I'll explain to you in a second why we're doing this. A lot of these hyper-oily compounds, long-chain fatty acids, along with very, very solventy compounds from the heads. So a lot of the ethyl acetate, acetaldehyde, and these kind of gluey solventy notes so we're basically putting together a big motley collection of, of- A crew? A motley crew, if you will, yeah. Of,
0: yeah. Of, of
2: crazy flavor compounds yeah. that on their own are not good. So <laughs> then we put those back okay. into the wash still. Now at Morlock, my understanding is they will take this liquid that's not exactly the same as us, but, but pretty similar, yeah. and they will distill it through another pot still three times, I think is my understanding. So we put ours back in our wash still, but this time on our wash still, we have plates so plates and a precondenser, which allows us to engage fractional distillation. So this allows us to really separate. Don't laugh. You asked this question. I know. <laughs> this is like, holy shit, does this end? Like, yeah.
1: like, like holy moly. It doesn't. I'm going to keep drawing it oh, out for your benefit. A, no, that's, that's an insane <laughs> process. Like, I'm the, not done. I know, no, no, no. I'm just <laughs> waxing lyrical for a break. So um, yeah, I'm so giving oh, my brain good, a yes. break here. Did you come up with this process? Yeah. yeah. Holy
2: mo- how? Um, again, you know, to, to the point I was saying earlier about drawing inspiration from other places, it was, it was a couple of things. So I'll, I'll give you the reason why we do this now, just because, again, for the break. So we wanted to create a a whiskey that was genuinely really, really good at three years old. Two, three, four, five-year-old whiskey, sure. right? Yeah. And a problem is, so along with many things, everything in moderation, right? so a lot of these compounds these really we call long chain fatty acids these things when they turn into esters when they turn into fruity compounds they can taste good but eventually they take the longest time to mature and even when they do they just tend to be the kind of oily notes and it's less about the fruitiness so we said all right we actually tracked this through gas chromatography yes as one does that's how you do it so we actually measured in that first from 50 down to 15% ABV at the spirit safe, the low wines, that only had about um, 30% of these long chain fatty acids. Whereas that little fraction at the end had the remaining bit, the 70% long chain fatty acids. So because we knew that those were going to take the longest time to mature, and even when they do, they turn into things that are just more oiliness, we said, let's fraction those out so that when we distill the rest through, we're getting these pleasant fruity notes, but not these other things that just take forever to mature yeah. out. Yeah, so we, yeah, we actually did measure this through gas chromatography. Yeah, checks out. And um, it turned out that there are similar practices in, not necessarily in whiskey, I actually didn't know about the Mortlock bit at the beginning, but from cognac. So I learned the, the, the idea of doing a cut in a washroom came from the cognac business. That's interesting. So yeah, so basically we're taking this other liquid, we're able to really concentrate the heads. So you get this really hypersolventy aroma, um, and we discard that. And then we get—we're basically holding the other really unpleasant oils at bay in the wash still. And we end up with this liquid, this distillate, that is like early hearts and late hearts put together. So it's like it's like strawberry leather. Ooh. It sounds crazy, but it's really, really good. Most of the time, it gets folded into our our normal hearts for the week, 15% of our yields. But sometimes we barrel that on its own, and that stuff is. Rad. That's okay. Really, really cool. Actually. Strawberry so, leather yeah. Westland. Yeah. Just imagine, like crazy, like raspberry tobacco. Yeah. Like you're, you know, you're in college, you're smoking a hookah. That's that's <laughs> the thing that's going on. There's a. <laughs> you just tease us with that? <laughs> so, one day, one day we'll release. I'm actually super excited to release one of those one day. We're not quite there yet, but um, but it's just so interesting these flavors that come through there, um, and at the same time we're able to make sure that these compounds that. Would be fine if you wanted to let something sit for fifteen years plus. Nice, don't get in the way. <laughs> nice.
0: Strawberry leather sounds like some sort of S and M shop. <laughs> Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. Keep the
1: microphone down, I, I, Matt. I, I, I I'm it. intentionally trying to not just look keep part it far away.
0: <laughs> um, do, do we have any questions from Twitter? Oh yeah, we do, we do, okay. we do. So uh, we actually, so actually, we had someone post a video on the YouTube's, which is very. Oh, they posted the link. Oh, this is great. So if you check out the At One Nation, not right now. If you check out the At One Nation uh, Twatterton page, you'll see that Mason P, at virtual underscore Mason, uh, tweeted us the the clip. So thank you, Mason. The clip of what?
1: Yeah, what is the clip of?
0: Didn't I just say that? Oh, the one that... They're doing it live. Brilliant. Oh, did I not say that? You did, so. You you said everything except for what it was. (laughs) (laughs) And you're putting me in charge of this. Okay, so Beth Kennedy asked, uh, how many times can a cask be used? And does it ever reach a point where you stop using it? Great
1: question, Beth Kennedy. It's actually mind-reading time because I was going to ask that question of Steve about wine as oh, well. So good, good, good. Could you answer it first about wine, and then we'll bounce back to Matt. Give his voice
6: a little break there.
1: But sure. Sure.
6: Uh, so, um, in wine, let's say with something like Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a really thick-skinned grape, sure. very high tannins. Um, there, you want to use probably between 50 and 100% new oak um, uh, and then the rest one fill and remember that, that, that normally an oak for about uh, maybe 16 to 24 months and then then you then you sell the barrels off. Okay. So in our world we're selling barrels all the time, uh, we pay about 1200 US dollars for a barrel and two years later we sell them for 180 bucks. Oh, so Sounds the, like a, the <laughs> economics of barrels so that we know are, are insane in wine. and <laughs> So in, in countries where and, and people are not making great wine, they will tell you why they don't use a lot of new oak because, you know, it, it really overpowers the wine, etc. There's an economic reason they're telling you that story. Cause it's, uh, but, oh, but that's pretty much, yeah. um, you know, um, for, for other varieties like Pinot Noir, maybe Grenache, there you can use neutral oak. You know, so maybe if it's, you know, it's a third fill, it'll still be absolutely fine because it's more just a vessel at that point in time. And, it, and it's imparting almost nothing at that point in time. So the point is, you can use them over and over, but they're just going to impart impart less and less of the actual oak and just become a vessel.
4: Yeah, yeah. Nick, are you using barrel aging in your beers at, at Odin? Yes, we do some some barrel aging. Um, predominantly, what we use them for is vastly different than what these guys are are using them. Um, by the time we get one of their $180 versions, they, um, we're not. Always looking for getting new oak flavor uh, from the barrel. We're actually uh, quite often, if we get one say from Westland, and we're making, uh, for example, an imperial stout or something that we might put in there, we're relying on the fact that the sorry, we're relying on the fact, fact that the barrel itself is still somewhat saturated with liquor, and um, well, fixed law of uh, diffusion says that if you have a low alcohol. Uh, you know, a uh, liquid that you're putting in the barrel, and you have a high alcohol liquid that's in the wood itself, it's going to diffuse into the lower alcohol. So that's the whiskey going from the wood into the the beer. And as it travels, it's going to pull um, anything that's left in that wood along with it to infuse that flavor into the beer. Wonderful. And so it will, um, you know, Mature in that respect very very quickly much faster than if we just dropped it straight into a new barrel um, and you get the whiskey flavor so uh, as are, well.
0: Is the ABV actually going up if you're putting it in? at seven yes. percent. It's going to yeah, come yeah, out. Yeah, it will actually
4: um, rise. Um, without actually measuring it, you know, and distilling yeah. it down, you, it, it's hard to say how much because there's so many different variables that would go into there. I've heard anything from, you know, a quarter of a percent to a percent and a half. Um, but oh, wow. yeah, okay. I'm not sure if I believe a percent and a half. i mean, But
0: okay, so it's somewhat nominal, but for the most part, it's it's adding flavor mm-hmm. and potentially body. Would it add body to the?
4: It can to the beer? certainly add the perception, especially if you're pulling in those um, the vanilla flavors and whatnot That's from exactly the, that. those yeah. vanilla. Yeah, they really, can really uh, can give you the perception of having a much fuller, rounded body. And you know, as we were talking about earlier, choosing your barleys and whatnot, when you're making a beer that is going to have those, those flavors come in, you want to make sure that you're making a, a product that complements whatever is going to come into it. Not everything tastes good if you throw it straight into a, a, a liquor barrel. Sure. Um, it, might be, it might be fun to try, but it, it may not actually be a great, a great product after you're drawing those, those flavors in. Um, Go on. I was going to say the other ways that we tend to use them uh, are like just what you're saying, kind of a home for for beer uh, that's going to do something else. that we're souring it or uh, blending it with something else, or um, lastly, if we're using wine, even though the uh, the ABV is less, it will still pull quite a bit of the the flavor, the wine flavor um, into the to the beer. And we've used uh, what was considered you know spent barrels from wineries that. Uh, I presume, because of the lower alcohol content in the beer, definitely pulls in quite a bit of wood flavor uh i mean into a i mean a yeah. light a light beer you 'll be able to taste that much easier than if you put a big stout in there it would just overpower all of oh, the other okay. other flavors okay. skinny
3: basically what he said <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I'll, the only thing i 'll touch on is um time um, we've found you know temperature is a huge variant in regards to time uh, during the summer we'll throw our scotch ale in a barrel and it'll be ready in 6 weeks and we'll get the flavor notes out of it so it complements the beer and is not overpowering and not tannic okay. sure. you know for a beer like that you want something that has a nice mouthfeel and a nice sweetness on the back end but if you leave it too long you will pull a lot of oak tan and a lot of harshness and sure. then you're smack in your mouth going mm-hmm. why is this beer dry it shouldn't be dry yep so yep. temperature and time are really a huge huge factor
1: when you put it into that uh, former liquor uh, cask will we also lose
3: head retention there as well I, i've seen some of these 13 percenters that are pretty flat on top as well that's a lot has a lot to do with how much that barrel is going to get moved around you can actually well, beat beer up and cause a lot of those proteins and things to fall out that help head retention. Okay. So say you have a beer in this barrel and it's in this room and then you forklift it out and put it in that room and then, oh, you expand and you move it to the back to this room. The more you do that and the longer it's in there, the more damage the beer actually takes as wow. far as head retention goes. Never had that. Bruising oh, up. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. fantastic. Cheers, Jimmy.
1: Cheers.
0: So to answer Beth's question, specifically on the whiskey, what's, what's Westland doing? How many times are you using those casks and... At what point do you give up on a cask to say, I'm not going to use it? So we use new American oak casks. We also use a variety
2: of other things, uh, used bourbon casks, cherry wine casks, other types of wine casks, beer casks now, um, every once in a while. But when we're just talking about new American oak versus used American oak. You know, We're using really high quality new American oak, air dried staves, slow growth oak. Not many bourbon producers... Well, with the exception of maybe one bourbon producer, nobody's doing this. So when we reuse our own casks, it's a totally different thing than a bourbon cask. A bourbon cask has spent six years in Kentucky. It was kiln-dried wood that a lot more flavor was extracted. Whereas for us, when we use a cask for three years, four years, but aging in our more temperate climate, it's way different, way different. So it's much more like, it's almost like a step in between Uh, virgin oak casks and then a used bourbon cask. It's like a 1.5. And so the big thing actually that that we look for and other producers now recognize is not just the flavor that's extracted, but every once in a while you'll stumble on like a whiskey that's 20 or 30 years old from a distillery that basically didn't have any money. And they were using old casks over and over and over again Mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that whiskey... You don't see much of it released, but every, you know, I'm sure you guys have probably seen some stuff like this. Yep. Um, it tastes like new make. It tastes like the day that it was put into the barrel. And the reason for that is, not only is there no extraction of flavors coming from the wood, but the liquid itself isn't changing. And that's due to some other things that happen inside of the wood that's really not commonly known or talked about that drive the oxidation and development of the spirit. And to us, that's much more important actually than the extraction of flavors. So when you have a really old cask, the things that are in the wood that help that reaction along are gone. And so you can put something in an old cask and it'll taste like new make spirit 30 years later. Sure. So that's something we look out for with our own casks. We've not, I mean, we're not anywhere close to seeing that as a possibility, but... When we do make things that are designed to be matured for a longer period of time, so we have things that we lay down uh, where we want to see what that looks like at 10 to 15 years old, we use older casks because we don't want, our biggest thing is balance. I mean, these these guys are all saying it, is that they want to have the balance, uh, you know, like to, to what Steve was saying about, they're using neutral oak with the much more delicate styles of wine, like Pinot Noir or a Grenache. Same thing for us. If we want something that's going to mature for a longer period of time, and we don't want it to just taste like oak, that cask needs to be a lot more neutral, right? Because we want to be able to respect the flavor that comes from the multi. Second
0: area. fill cask. Absolutely. Or yeah, yeah. I've often talked about it, comparing it to a, a tea bag. And that's where the more times you use it, the less flavor it gives off. You use it the first time and you get a nice rich tea, Jason. I love tea. Yeah, what's your, what's your brew time for your first bag? Three minutes. Second bag. Second use? Four minutes. Four minutes, third use? Five minutes, but All it has right. to be a special tea. Yeah, but it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's the more you use something, the less it's going to give off. Um, we got another question here. If, if, can we move on to the other question? You're in charge, yeah, my yeah, man. Cool. Just really quickly before we go to this other question, has everybody tasted all of the whiskies in front of them? Some people have emptied their whiskies. Uh, (laughs) Do we taste the difference,
2: actually? Do we taste the difference between the one that's malted, the one in the middle, and then the one on the right, in particular, which has much more oak character? To me, this is like, this is fascinating. Even though we see this all the time, it's still... Wow. Wow. The Benadryl is strong.
0: Um, Jason,
1: no, uh, Joshua, Josh, Joshua will buy another <laughs> 10 microphones.
0: <doesn't> <laughs> Is that even working? Did you hear me out? I didn't hear you. Check, 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 check. Oh, yeah. Okay, there we Thank go. Thank you very much. Maybe I just didn't want to hear you. So, we got a question from Aaron Krauss, a.k.a. the Handsome Getty League. He says, What's the deal with water in whiskey making? Hashtag ask Matt. <laughs> <laughs> what's the deal
2: with water and whiskey making? Um, Should in he what elaborate? sense? Yeah.
0: Can, can you come up here and elaborate? Oh, please. Please, oh, yeah. please, please. Come on. They've been do dying it, to have do somebody it, up here. Do anybody? No, no,
2: no. I no give no, him a round of applause. One. Yeah, there it is. Audience that member participation. Me.
3: Speak straight into Speak it. Into so it. you guys have talked about wood and barley and, and, uh, and yeast, but there's a big component here that doesn't, never gets talked about is water. You know, in Scotland, they always talk about
1: the water's going through this lock and it's going through these mountains, and it's going through these hills.
3: But we don't hear that so much. Maybe in Kentucky a little bit. You don't hear that so much in American products product so much, non-Kentucky stuff. So is water like a real critical thing, or can you just use tap water? Does it matter? So... Uh...
2: Sorry. So no, no. This is a great. I love answering this. It just it just brings out frustration in me. Um, They talk a lot of distilleries talk about the water because frankly they don't want to talk about anything else. And there's a highly romanticized version of what whiskey making is like. Does water make a difference? Yeah, it does actually, Um, especially in the mashing process. Um, So if you look at, I mean, a lot of beer styles, actually, you guys can probably talk about that after I'm done with this part. Um, But from a whiskey-making standpoint, you'll have differences in in dissolved solids and and things like calcium and all that stuff. Kentucky will drone on endlessly about the limestone-filtered water and how great all that stuff is. It's really great. It's really great. But the thing is... (laughs) Nobody in
1: Kentucky listens to this podcast, so you're totally fine. You okay, keep good going. Um,
0: <laughs> that's not a true
5: statement. That's not <laughs> a true <laughs> statement.
2: And so with the limestone filtered water, they have a, a high pH. And that's where the, the sour mashing process is built in. What the limestone filtered water does do is it filters out iron. Iron is really, really bad to have inside your fermentation. It's death to yeast. Uh, it's also really bad to have in, uh, distillate, in whiskey. It'll actually uh, turn whiskey black. Uh, if you were to, like, drop in, like, iron filings into a bottle of whiskey, it would turn black. In um, case anybody has some iron filings on them and they want to try it out. Um, <laughs> if you have iron filings on you, that's weird. But, you know, uh, so anyway, so... You do th- so so uh,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: maybe that's true. So, so the thing is, but when they go to actually, like, bottle the whiskey, especially in Kentucky, they're reverse osmosising everything. So the special water that's there is just neutral water. And it just gets heavily romanticized. And what I always say, I talk to people about this actually all the time, about water. We have the best water. Because that's, the, that's what every single distillery says. Without fail, we have the best water. All the best water. So what we have here in the Pacific Northwest, most people in here, I'm sure, are from the Pacific Northwest. They, we all know that our water here is really good. It's fed by the Cedar River watershed. Yeah, absolutely, A round of applause. We have the Cedar, from the tap, absolutely from the tap. The Cedar River watershed is the least polluted and least treated water source for any major metropolitan area in the United States. It's all, it's all snow melt. It's all rainfall. It doesn't go into the water, so there's very little dissolved solids. There's no minerals or anything. The pH is almost totally neutral. It's about as close to neutral water as you can get. So if you're looking at something from a like, chemically pure water, which you don't necessarily need to be, um, then it's great. I think the key thing for us is that we don't mess with our water. We don't try to fil- filter it or change it to be something that it's not. We want the water to to be to play a role in our whiskey, certainly. We have good water here, again, as every distillery says, we have great water. Um, <laughs> but we also don't want to give it outsized importance. So I'm glad that you asked the question um, because the water is an important component of it. But I think my beef with the Scottish whiskey industry and the Kentucky industry is that they use water as a crutch because they don't want to talk about the other raw ingredients.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And and, uh, Aaron had been on a a whiskey geek tour with us previously and was a a fantastic guest and other people. What we find is, (laughs) given that it is a whiskey geek, and just like tonight's conversation is ramping up the geek uh, in whiskey and beer and wine, um, going around Scotland, we're asking distilleries so talk to us about your barley. How much flavor does barley impart in this final process? And they all go, none at all. None at all. You, you could, you, your barley yeah. doesn't matter at all. Yield. Just yield. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. It's, isn't that depressing? <laughs> right. I mean,
2: that's the thing for us is, like, again, remember how much whiskey out there. It's really, really good. And I know that there's distilleries out there, of course, where the water does make a difference. You go to places like, like uh, Ben Riech, where they've got a super, super chalky water yeah. that's got yeah, like blowhole Yeah, exactly. Um, and that does make a difference. It makes a difference in fermentation. It all carries on. But the problem is, is what if we look at the other things, too? Like, yes, respect the water, but yeah. don't use it as as an excuse to not look at barley, is my personal yeah. belief. Yeah. Uh, skinny
3: is the water in this part of the world too pure, too neutral for uh, beer production? Depends on the style. Uh, we tend to add a little calcium back into the water. But... That's really all we mess with. What
2: for? Can, I was going to say, oh. can you guys talk about the differences in beer styles that are based on the water styles, like globally? Ooh. Sorry, is that maybe this I put you spot. guys on the oh, <laughs> oh, <that's great. laughs> oh, great. Oh, well, great. A
4: lot of the uh, old historic styles, have they originated um, to what they, they are or what they were um, largely because of the, the water. And if you look at the locations of old breweries, many of them were on old, uh, very deep aquifers, which um, gave them very consistent water throughout the year. Um, like Matt said, we have we have great water here. It's all snowmelt, rainfall um, comes down. It's a very neutral palette for us to build whatever type of uh, water we want. On top of that, uh, to make different styles. But if you take probably the most famous example would be Guinness. Um, Guin- the you know Dublin sits on a giant chalk dome, uh, and their water is being filtered through chalk, and so the chalk gets into their, their water, they're using it, and it actually buffers the pH higher, um, so they can use lots of dark malts, which buffers the pH lower, to give them a nice, uh, nice. natural mash, te- or a mash wow. temperature that works for making beer. Uh, so, so you cool. can make uh, things out of those specs. Like you could make a, a pilsner in Dublin, but it just wouldn't taste as good as one that's made with a, a different water profile. And so, when we're making, for example, a uh, a light lager, we'll add certain salts back to our water to make sure that the pH of our mash and our final product is within the range that we want. Not because it's like necessarily the best thing to do, but it just tastes better. You know, it it um, it helps our fermentation, it helps our starch conversions, it helps all, the whole process, helps things settle out better. Um, and so we'll add certain salts. Whereas if we're making a dark beer that has lots of Highly roasted malts. We'll use um, different uh, different salts in that one, and the end goal is to make a product that tastes good. And that was the end goal of the people, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They wanted to make things that tasted good, and so different styles developed based off of what was available, whether it was the water in a lot of cases, but also what they could grow. You know, which barley's were growing or what grains were growing. Like the farther north you go, the more rye you tend to see sure. because it just grows better uh, there. Um, but uh, yeah there's a number of different classic examples like London water is very hard uh, you know the Dublin water has lots of um, chalk in it um, you know different places in Germany had very, very soft waters
1: that was nice. you did well being thrown way in on the deep end by Matt Hoffman on that one. Hey, to me that's that's the coolest thing I, in the world and, I, and yeah. the, you know the
2: thing, I think the thing that's the shame about that is that most people don't know that that these Styles of beer that originated throughout Europe are based actually on the water, on oh, wow. using that to help, as you said, you know, modulate pH and, and things like that. That's super cool.
0: Nice. Nice. Oh, uh, Natalie, would you mind coming up to the Microphone? I couldn't think of the word because I'm on the third whiskey here. Mouth stick. (laughs) The mouth stick. never mind. Okay, so this is a um, question from Liz, who was sick and couldn't make it today. Um,
1: Sorry to hear that, Liz. Hope you're feeling
0: better. Yep. She wants to know about uh, terroir in beer, in addition to all of the cool stuff we just heard about water. um, You know, we we hear a lot about terroir from wine and, of course, um, from Matt about Westland. but not as much about it in the beer universe. How much of that is like something you think about and um, what would it look like if there were sort of more of a focus on that?
1: Awesome, well done Liz as always. Thank you Liz. And thank you Natalie. Cheers Natalie.
4: Uh, Uh, So she's absolutely right, Terroir is not Spoken about as much in beer as certainly in wine, and as well as what Matt was saying, and largely because just as Matt said, um, barley has been treated uh, even in brewers as a commodity for you know for a very very long time. And so, bar- the great thing and the terrible thing about barley is that it is easy to preserve. So you can dry it out, and you can ho- hold on to it for years and years and years, and you can blend that together and make a you know a big homogeneous lot that. Everybody gets the everybody gets the same thing. Um, there is a movement for smaller smaller uh, malt houses to use locally sourced ingredients to impart local flavors um, and do different types of um, you know processes that the big guys aren't doing. Um, there's also you know our ability to use things like water and hops uh, to you know select local you know flavors or seasonal flavors. But since we're so good at preserving hops and, and barley, it tends to get mushed together. And you, and you don't get as much seasonality. But there still certainly is um, certain flavors that present with different varietals. Um, maybe you can talk about the hops, especially.
3: Uh, yeah, uh, I'll touch on barley, too. Uh, we actually have a local maltster who started up just north of here in Skagit Valley. And uh, they're bringing a lot of really high-quality malts and develop their own process and their own machines to kiln and malt this barley, and it is very much a local. And you do get the Terroir and the difference between you know a UK strain grown here in Washington versus over in England and. Um, they're doing really great stuff. I believe they've worked with you guys uh, quite a bit as well in the Bread Lab. They use quite a bit
2: of their their malt, yeah, and then with the Bread Lab too.
3: So it's nice to see that kind of terroir built in. And then, I mean, what is it? Like 70% of the hops in the world are grown in Washington and Oregon. Um, But you taste a very large difference between hops grown in Australia and New Zealand. Those hops are generally stone fruit and spicy versus the ones here which are a little bit more citrus and piney and dank wow <laughs> oh man it goes on water water you know i, I will go to kolsch and kolm the reason a kolsch tastes so good from the city of kolm is because of their water and then my favorite thing is i used to make a smoked beer in my previous city and we actually took our malt to different famous barbecue joints wow and we had them, each one of them, smoke a portion of the malt for this beer. Oh, wow. So it was very much a, <laughs> a local terroir that you, wow. you can't replicate anywhere else in the world, at least not accurately, yeah. because wow. you were using very local things and sources, not just ingredients, but people and connections as well. Was your previous city Kansas City? Uh, it was uh, Houston. Okay, I have a question. So you guys <laughs> yep. might be nerding out
2: on this stuff.
1: Twaertchen only. Um, <laughs> how
2: much? How much of this stuff do you get? I mean, we have the question just now, but but when you have customers who are buying your products, or you guys wanting to offer this stuff up, how much? How much does this get talked about in your industry?
6: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, in wine, it's 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 everything. Um, it really is. And what's really cool is it's becoming even more sort of micro in the sense of single vineyard stuff versus even uh, you know a, a particular area that's larger than that so people are dialing down into vineyards and now they're dialing down into blocks within vineyards and it's shocking because uh you know we we've, we just launched a wine two years ago called heart of the hill which is from red mountain but and red mountain's only 4,400 acres and this it's aspect and slope is pretty you know pretty south-facing yeah. but there's one spot called Heart of the Hill, that's totally different. We don't know why, because when we analyze it, it seems to be the same, but when we taste the wines, they are totally different. And so this wine, we we, we almost had to make it. And it's (laughs) shocking to us when when we taste that wine against other wines that are made with the same Cabernet grapes, 100 yards away, 500 yards away, and they are totally different. Can you taste the
0: difference in the grapes as well before you're...
6: Producing wine, do do you notice that difference? You you can you you can pick up differences in terms of uh, berry size. I mean, we call them berry. You know, so berry size, skin thickness. Yep. Um, You know, you look at the seeds, right? Because we're looking and see, you know, how how brown and nutty the seeds are versus those other areas. Those are all the constituent parts that are are going to change, um, you know, the character and the quality of the the, the wines relative to each other. So it's a huge movement and it's really cool. And that's why I think, you know, the whole craft movement is so much bigger than people realize. Because craft is about people wanting to know exactly where stuff comes from, who makes it. Etc. so it's, it's all you guys that are driving this because you're so interested and you're geeking out on it that's driving yep. this movement in, in, in our world and all these, I mean our worlds are so adjacent I mean, you know, that it's, it's pretty amazing yeah. uh,
0: Steve, uh, let me just carry that a little further because you're talking about single vineyards right, people are getting into that do you see it whittling down even further, is it in the whiskey world, me as a whiskey dork, I'm looking for single casks and how that cask is different from that cask, even if it's from the same distillery, it's the same age, same distillate, the casks have been sitting next to each other for 17, 18 years, but it's different.
6: Do you see that getting? Do you see that happening within the wine world? Yeah, I think where we're moving is, it's the same concept, but we're moving to these blocks. So, uh, you, you know, within vineyards. So th- there might be a, the, you know, that's ca- called, say, seven, eight, 10 blocks within one vineyard. And each yeah. block is different, and people are now starting to make wines. Before that, you'd make a wine from that vineyard. Today, you're separating it. You know, out. We keep every one of our wines is completely separate. We never ever blend them, so they every barrel is completely separate until we make the final blend. So we have the opportunity yeah. to do what you're talking about. So we could, sure, we could do a single cask, but I. Whether you know whether the wine world would actually go that way, that could be really interesting.
0: And and that's the question: Do you have wine drinkers that want to get that geeky to get to get the the magnifying glass that close to the source, to where they want to taste that cask next to that cask next to that cask?
6: I, I think all of our worlds are colliding. I mean, I really yeah. believe that, that 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 that's why we all up here. I mean, we are the, the commonality between you know what people are thinking and the, what we're we making is so sure. close sure. and so yeah i think we're all moving in the same direction to 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 these very distinct single source, single barrel things nice
2: i would like to point out how cool this is it's uh, <laughs> <was> really cool <laughs> well but just, we can say when we when we describe to people all the time like i said before we're making a pacific northwest single malt whiskey and not a Scottish single malt in the Pacific Northwest. And this is what I mean. It's not just about the fact that 80% of our barley comes from Washington State, it's that there's a mentality, an approach that is shared by everybody here, the way that we're looking at things. And it manifests itself slightly differently, but still there's these things that we all kind of think about in ways that span across these different businesses and different industries that makes our approach way different from the Scottish approach, which yeah. is way different than the Japanese approach, and yeah. on and on.
1: But but I think, as Steve says, and we've talked before, it's because of these people here, and the demands of the people place upon you in the Pacific Northwest. We're kind of fortunate, I, I'm living in Virginia right now, and Virginia's kind of got a similar movement. Um, Tennessee has got a similar movement, but it seems like people in Washington and Oregon have been there for two decades. And you get to respond to how pronounced that demand is for you. I think that's one of the most amazing things about being in the Pacific Northwest and, and making a Pacific Northwest whiskey and wine and beers mm-hmm. and so on and so forth.
0: We had a, a question here, sir. Would you mind coming up here and grabbing the mic? Maybe giving your name, too. Be good.
3: My name's Bill Zitkowitz. I uh, work in the wine industry and I'm a whiskey lover, geeking out, loving this right now. Um, I got to taste uh, with Lewis. Uh, 17 different barrels from Bets, and one of the geekiest things or one of the coolest things that happened to me was tasting fruit from the rocks for four or five months actually from October till about a month ago and so yes when it comes to wine there are gu- those of us that are geeking out on yeah, on yeah. the specific vineyards. Now, I, lo- I like you guys love single cast. I love cast strength. I love unchill filtered. Sure. And yeah. so I just wanted to bring that up. But I've actually got to taste some of that stuff and uh, know Linet Lewis from probably about six years back. So
0: uh, that's very cool. Cheers, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Oh. Any, any other yep,
0: questions yep, while I've yep. got it out? Uh, Mr. James up. Foster, you got to come on up. You didn't so make James, Fo- so the gentleman coming up, by the way, because I'm, I'm just going to let everybody know, he is probably the, the person that sends in the most questions of anybody who listens to the podcast. We don't answer them all. In fact, a lot of what he sends in tend to be, here's an idea for a podcast, and so he's giving us work. Now we've got to <laughs> build a podcast around suggestions. It's the teacher in me. Exactly. <laughs> so hold it. Nice and close. High and tight. That's
3: it. Okay, so um, we talked earlier about how the age of the wood uh, affects the final spirit that comes out of it. One of my favorite bottles is a dechar rechar, and yeah. I'm wondering what happens when you dechar and rechar a barrel.
0: This this is so this is what uh, we were talking about earlier. Uh, you, talk about if you wouldn't mind your your, your French oak that you gave to Westland, and and you dechar rechar these casks.
6: Yeah, that's a... So we, we had exactly the same question. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I've known Matt uh, ever since they started the distillery. And um, so, and I knew what their vision was, and I knew that he was thinking about these things. So we got together over four years ago, and I said, what happens if I bring you ten different French oak barrels that we literally d char and rechar that sure. we've used for, for wine production. Firstly they're French oak versus American oak. Secondly, you know they they they, they 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 we've made wine in them and thirdly they've been um decharred and recharred. And I can tell you that um so we we four years into that. We were just tasting did we taste three of them uh, tonight? Yeah, we tasted three of the, the barrel samples tonight and I can tell you that it was insane. I mean, firstly, the differences between these three was so incredible, and that's what's so exciting. Um, And even though, you know, all those whiskey lactones don't exist, you know, because it's French oak, I mean, the character of, of all three of them was really, really interesting. So that's something that... At some point in the future, you know, all, you, you, all of us are going to get to taste uh, when we when we decide to release it. So yes, absolutely, it, it, se- it certainly seems to work, and it even works for French oak, which is something that is not used that often for whiskey.
2: Yeah, it's this has been a really exciting project for us because we really actually don't do a ton of other experimentation with French oak, and so we were able to see a few different types of of cast, different different cooperages, um, different maturation strengths, but with the D char rechar specifically. You know they're shaving out the inside, so it's actually not a D char, but it's it's scraping out the wine flavor. So we're actually not getting any of the wine flavor uh, from the Bets winery, and that's because the wine doesn't penetrate all the way into the wood. Uh, so the idea with, with a cask like this is that you're basically making a new cask from the from the beginning. The difference there are differences, of course. Um, the biggest difference is that your stave is thinner, and so the oxidation rate might be a little bit different. I don't know if I can speak to the ultimate effects scientifically with any amount of clarity that I would be comfortable putting my name behind. Um, but that's something we're investigating. And uh, stave thickness is certainly always a thing when you talk to cooperages about uh, how that process goes. Um, you know, what, what, what do you want out of your cast? What do you want your cast to do? Do you want more oxidation? Do you want more extract? Um, and so we're experimenting with that right now with French oak and the results are, are Super, super interesting. As Steve was saying, just the stuff that was all again same distillate, filled at the same time, wildly different stuff. Um, and you know, you might say that here's a cast that's been around for a long time, and these weren't super old casks. Um, so it would kind of depend. You get to a certain point. So here's an interesting thing: is well, maybe it's interesting to me and nobody else. But um, we're you know, right old, here the, beside you, Matt. We're those, right okay, here. I appreciate that. But you know, I was talking before about those old casks. Um, and the problem is, is if the whiskey is not interacting with something in the wood. So if basically anything in the wood that the whiskey hits, if that's been used so many times, that, that wood is essentially worthless. It's not adding anything to the whiskey. Is it possible they could take that cask and just by investing the time in it to dechar? I mean, there is money involved, of course. But to take that cask that's been around for a long time, if there's still usable wood left you can take a cast that's been used for 100 years, theoretically, and still be able to get something out of it. Because the whiskey doesn't always penetrate deep into the wood. There's the, something called the whiskey line. If you look at a stave, you can actually see um, the level that the whiskey gets into. And it's really not very far. It'll be even, it'll be even less with wine and beer. Um, so the DCR rechar thing is something that's, that's now becoming much more widely
0: used. So uh, we've got, we can only take one more question because we need to transition into uh, oh jeez i've got four people uh-huh. hold on wow okay
1: we'll take we'll take two really okay we'll take yeah, yeah, two okay we'll take here two. run up look yeah, at quick that so you can
3: answer another one
1: what does your hat say
0: Yay, adventure. I
1: love it. It It's fantastic. I love it. I just
3: want to say you guys are awesome, and thank you very much. And I love Westland Distilleries. I had my 50th birthday party here last year, which was amazing. Happy birthday. And I want to encourage everyone here to buy a bottle of Westland, because it's the best, my favorite in the world. The
1: current hand fill is amazing.
0: Oh, it's stunning.
1: The winter is my favorite, by the way.
3: But my real question is... um, Like, a lot of times you find things by accident, and I don't know if some of what you found has here tonight, but have you ever thought of adding Benadryl to the uh, (laughs) (laughs) the barrel? Ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the evening. You win
2: the podcast. I'd like all four of you to answer that. (laughs) I think what we've seen tonight is (laughs) a
1: clear, oh God, never mind, I'm going to stay away from medical
2: claims right now.
1: Yeah. Uh, I've added the, whiskey to Benadryl rather than Benadryl to whiskey
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that was a blue pill and something else happened was it Trent that had a question? Oh, who was it? Here, chap here in blue chap here in blue
3: yeah.
0: all right, yeah okay,
1: last question make, make it, it, a it a good, good one, one. Good. no pressure
5: hey there, uh, this question's for Matt um, I've been following Westland for a while now I know you guys always have lots of experiments and kind of falls back to the question of Terar and and local uh, whiskey development. Um, there's a two part question. One, will there ever be like this ultimate Torah, like Voltron of like the bread farm malt with the, the, the west, like the, the, you know, the Pacific Northwest peat and the Gariana wood in a single bottling kind of experiment. And then two, like realistically speaking, commercially speaking, would something like that ever actually be scalable Uh, to be a kind of like a core range given kind of how difficult it is to source all these local materials to a point where we can, it's not these just one-off collector's items where people have to like go and go into a lottery to get a bottle that actually become available for everyone around the world like, you know, like scotch whiskeys where they have, you know like, you know, like Brooklady who have experiments pretty easily common to find like their local barley bottling which is somewhat of a more terroir-focused model, sure. but it's, it's fairly common to find. It. I don't have to search really hard for it. Would that ever be a reality for something like that for the Pacific Northwest? That's a super question. Yeah, really? so really,
0: really what was good. your name? Dennis. 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 Cheers, man. Thank you. Yeah, great
2: questions. Um, so the first one specifically was about... Hyperterroir. Hyperterroir. Voltron. Voltron. And go do, does it Does it exist, was the question? Or would you do it? Yeah, oh, would you do it? I can, I can tell you that we have filled spirit made with new varietals of barley grown in Washington State, smoked with Washington State peat into a Garriana oak cask.
0: Yeah, big round of applause, man. So Ultron,
2: we'll just steal that name. Oh, God, we'll give you credit. Uh, that's, we're being recorded now. Uh, so, yeah, so we have done that. Um, and then within that, God, there's there's like a million different things to explore, right? Is So one of the things we're really interested in right now is reuse Gary Oak. So what does that look like with yeah, Washington sure. State Pete? Does that begin to look a little bit more like... You know, if you if you put it up against our, the the Scottish archetype, I guess, which is that they're using mostly used casks. So if we put out something that is still all of our own local stuff, Gariana oak, but heavily peated barley, but it's in used casks like they do, that's going to be a very different expression than than what we've tasted from Gariana thus far. But it's going to be wild. I can tell you, that'll be wildly wildly different, and it's going to be awesome. So yes, we're working on that stuff. The challenge is is that to your to your second point. How scalable is it? The challenge is, is a few things. Um, one in the barley. So when we begin to look at these new varietals of barley, they cost a lot. They cost a lot of money. I mean, barley, malted barley is way more expensive than corn, first of all. But when you start looking at these, so we've got this varietal of, of barley that we've been using uh, recently, something called purple obsidian, which is the best name. And it, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a variety. It's purple in color, grows in the Scotch Valley, it costs four times what a commodity barley costs. It's very, very expensive. It begins to cost more than you know wine grapes do at this point. So there's Joshua's got it there. It's purple in color. <laughs> you guys actually, hey, no, pass, pass it around. Yeah, and and I encourage you guys natural. to eat some. Yeah. This is
0: not roasted, this is the natural. Correct,
2: color. yeah, so this is the natural color um, of this. So people see uh, barley, and they think barley, they see, okay, tan and color. Because that's, you know, if you were to make a pilsner, That's the color that's coming from that largely is the the tan color of barley. But barley comes in reds, in blues, and purples, and blacks. You just never see that because the commodity barley business has totally gotten rid of it compared to the wine business, whereas the wine business celebrates these differences between varietals. So the trick for us has always been, okay, one, working with the Bread Lab, which sounds like you know a little bit about already. This is a great organization. it's run by Dr. Steve Jones up at Washington State University in uh, Mount Vernon, up in the Skagit Valley. He is really one of the only grain breeders in the world breeding barley and wheat for flavor and not just for yield. So he's bringing back a lot of these varieties and developing new varieties for Washington State. Super, super exciting, but the scale today is pretty small. Now, the idea with this is to be able to grow these things and grow better tasting ingredients to a scale that does matter. Um, there's a number of, of, of instances where he's worked with large companies um, where he will take a new variety of wheat that gets used in, in a bun or a, or a pastry or a tortilla and will make an effect in flavor that is felt worldwide. Wow. And that's something that's really, really exciting. And that's happening here, only in the Pacific Northwest, super exciting, but then when we look at the barley and with the garyana oak, we're facing some fundamentally different challenges. The garyana oak is, in most jurisdictions, you can't cut it down. There's a couple of places in Oregon where you can, um, but mostly you can't find it. So compared to American white oak, it's way smaller. When you look at Washington State peat, the availability is way smaller than the Scottish peat. So we have to be learning these things on and on, and every time we do this, it's custom and it adds expense and all these things. So. We're gonna, I mean, we've been working on these things for a while, we're very excited. We've already been able to share the Garyana project with you, uh, whenever the, uh, Dennis, right? Whenever Dennis Ultron comes out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we'll be super excited about that, yeah. but we do have to be realistic about how much of it we can we can source, and you know, a lot of the things with some of this stuff is, is we take a, a lot of risk on these things, like we, we can try new varietals of barley. We have no idea what a lot of these taste like because they've never been used in whiskey or in beer. Um, that's part of what's exciting about it. So, you know, we keep adding these new things um, to it and it's kind of, it's craziness because we're, we're buying hundreds of thousands of pounds of barley that have never been proven in whiskey before. Um, but that's, that's what makes it exciting. So, will it be scalable to a certain extent? It won't be cheap.
1: Uh,
0: just <laughs> careful, careful what, what you wish, wish for. Yes. <laughs> All those collectors out there. And if yes. you don't buy it,
1: he's going to be hugely disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at you, Dennis. He's going yeah, to gonna you. have your name on it, so hopefully. <laughs> um, so, yeah. thank you for your, your questions on the hot mic. Thank you for your questions from Twatterton. Um, we close out our episodes by asking our interviewees um, for a misconception from all we've ever spoken to has been whiskey people. So we're going to get a misconception from the wine industry, two misconceptions from the beer industry, and we'll close out with a misconception, the whiskey industry from Malhoff.
0: Right. Someone, someone comes to your vineyard, your winery. So here, here's something. I know fuck all about the wine industry. We could tell. Don't worry. Right? Um... So I've got loads of misconceptions. I could just do my own podcast about this. But so, you have your own podcast. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've got someone coming to your, your vineyard or your winery and who says something about wine that you say, where on God's green earth did you come up with this thought? Right? Which sometimes it's whatever. So, so just with that in mind and also uh, Skinny and Nick...
6: With that in mind, what give give us a misconception, Steve? Sure. Well, well, one of the most common, and it sometimes comes from people that that collect wines. Um, they'll you know because remember we I describe wines in in you know in all sorts of ways, right? If you because there's lots of stuff going on in wine, and there are about 60 different esters that are truly uh, you know around in wine, and some of them will be unlocked, you know, d- d- depending on fermentation. Some will be trapped. Um, and the number of times I've been asked, so when do you add the blueberries to the wine? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you? you know, it's like saying, so when do you add the leather yeah. to the wine?
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so when do you do that? <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, Bob Betts always says, what happens in a winery after midnight, only the winemaker knows. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Skinny?
3: This one's actually mass marketing, all macro-brewing. They, they love to use this term, and it's fucking idiotic. Sure. You no, can not. swear. Okay, We're grown-ups. I swore the shit out of it before. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I wasn't listening to you, I'm sorry. <laughs> you and the rest Whoa. of the audience, don't worry about it. I have a feeling um, Skinny's going to be invited back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> invited back by Jason. Yeah. New host. Uh, by Josh, yeah. Anyone who fights my corner is always <laughs> welcome back. <so. laughs> It's chill filtered, or cold filtered. <laughs> triple
2: hop brewed, uh, Yeah, what's, what's yeah. the yeah. other one? Uh,
3: the uh, the brew, uh, oh, okay.
2: the
1: the triple frost
3: brewed, that's it. Oh, yeah. The it's,
1: coldest, most refreshing?
3: It, you have to cold filter beer. You, oh, you right. cool the beer down to drop all that crap out, yeah. so it's easier to filter. You don't filter it warm. It's just marketing crap. That's all it is. Don't fall for it.
0: When's Black Raven Ice coming out?
3: (laughs) I'm not going to greenlight that project. You know, the sad thing is that it would be wildly successful. (laughs) I'm going to go cry. Uh, Nick? Nick? So, to
4: follow that up today... We filtered beer warm, Whoa. so one of the misconfections Why? is uh, wow. so there was so there was a problem that led to this. But oh, okay. <laughs> okay, you're putting so, your uh, fire here. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So um, fire filtered. As he we was saying, when you cool beer down, you drops or proteins come out of precipitation and drops out. Well, you also can not make those proteins to begin with and extract them into other parts in the process. So we actually can cool down the, the sample, put it in, in a freezer. Uh, puts an ice cube on it, whatever, to to see what it's going to look like, and yeah. you you can express your cold chill uh, or your chill haze that way. We just wanted to make sure there was no yeast that came through in the process because it was actually the beer you were drinking earlier, and it needs oh. to be crystal clear and have no yeast bite whatsoever. So, we pulled out you know one cup of yeast out of our. Yeah, our tank of beer, but that, that one cup can really affect the flavor. So that's not what we normally do, but that was a misconception that just happened to fall in my lap. So, meta
3: misconception.
1: <laughs> so, so give, us a, give us a more generic one since you just had the fun one. Uh, yeah. So,
4: uh, <laughs> we a lot of times when customers come in, they'll ask for when um, one way or another the most flavorful beer that we have, the hoppiest beer, or the strongest beer, or the biggest beer, or the, you know, uh, the one that has the most in it. The beeriest and beer. The beeriest beer. <laughs> and, and there are fantastic, world-class beers that everybody should be enjoying that are exceptionally light and nuanced that on a lot of those flavors get lost when you take a heavy fist to it with, uh, uh, you know, 10 pounds of hops per barrel or 23% ABV, uh, and <laughs> and when you're actually drinking it, it doesn't matter if it's uh, a, I mean, it, for some people, it could be a macro uh, light lager. For other people, it could be an amber or an IPA. It's such an intensely personal experience when you're actually drinking that yourself that nobody else gets to say if that's good, better or worse that awesome. person in that moment There's gets to gym enjoy gym. it exactly as much as they're enjoying it. And so to them, that could be the best beer in the, the world. And so mm-hmm. just because it's bigger, or hoppier, or, or more beery doesn't mean that it's better. Uh, it just means it's different. Wonderful. Nice.
1: And, and that totally echoes something our, our episode that went live today, uh, David Sturt who owns Creative Whiskey Company in Scotland, was railing against the exact same thing. People who just blindly follow trends. And he says, just go explore it for yourself find your own best whiskey or beer or wine. That's a a bold statement. It's it's not smooth, but it's a bold (laughs) statement. I was waiting for that. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Hoffman. There are so many
2: misconceptions (laughs) in whiskey. It's hard to know. It's genuinely hard to know where to begin. I mean, I think the big thing is, besides age statements, which is obvious, um, and it's coming from a point of view, which is like, because again, because the raw ingredients aren't being valued, that the expectation is that the older it gets, the more flavor it gets. And that's because you're not thinking about, well, let's think about flavor from the beginning of the process. And so there's that. But actually, the thing that, and it's not necessarily a bad, it's just a misconception. It's just people think about all the time, you guys make bourbon, you're Americans, You, you make bourbon. And then when we go, okay, like, yes, we know that bourbon is made in this country, but we are, 2,000 miles away from Kentucky.
3: <laughs> 2,000 miles
2: away from Scotland is Istanbul, Turkey. <laughs> and so you really begin to, seriously, when you think about this, and you go, why would we make the same thing that's being made 2,000 miles away when they have totally different climate, totally different soils, totally different agriculture, just because we are in the same country? American. And, you know, and we said, OK, you know what, actually the thing that's more authentic for us here, even though there's no history, is we grow a lot of barley here. We do a great job growing barley here. So let's use malted barley. It's more authentic for us here. As soon as we have that conversation with people, then they get it. But for us, that's the biggest thing. Like, Americans make bourbon, full stop. And uh, we encounter that, I swear to you, every day.
0: Wow. So. Wow. Well,
1: guess what, Joshua?
0: Oh, is it that time? It is that time. You know, one, one thing that I want to say before I say some other things. He's backing it up. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that I didn't mention when I, before we brought Matt and, and the other guests, Nick, Skinny, and Steve, on was wh- how we fell in love with Westland. Because, again, we were bloggers that wanted to get out of blogging because we were starting our own independent bottling company, our own festival, etc. And we got these samples in, and when we tasted them it was unlike anything that we had tasted. We were tasting a whiskey that was on the level of people were realizing Japanese whiskey is damn good. This was on that level. And we were absolutely blown away, absolutely floored that something so magical could, not that bourbon isn't magical, I think it is, regardless of what my shirt says. Um, you know, there, you, it was obvious that you were doing something that was so very different and so very Westland. So I tip my hat to you, sir. Thank you very much. So yeah, so this is this is the end of the podcast. This is where I say this is the end, my this friend. This is the end. So walk down the hall. No, no. Anybody else? No. Val Kilmer, where are you? Seeing the? Okay. So, <laughs> so hopefully, for those of you that, that aren't familiar with the podcast and you've come tonight, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Ho- hopefully you'll continue listening to the podcast. Those that are that podcast listeners, Single Cast Nation members, etc., thank you all for coming out. Uh, you can find our podcast on any self-respecting podcast app. Uh, <laughs> you can also, you know... Uh, you can even find I- us on the less self-respecting <laughs> podcast apps. <laughs> That's where you'll find Jason. <laughs> Passed out. Uh, on an app, that doesn't work. Um, so check us out. Also, One Nation Under Whiskey.com. With us, whiskey is always spelled without an E. So, with that said, I'm going to tell you how you can get in touch with us. If you feel you want to get in touch with us, maybe you had a question in mind and you didn't want to ask or you didn't feel comfortable asking, we can answer it in another podcast. Uh, you can email us, questions at One Nation Under Tweet at us at One Nation Whiskey, Instagram us, which is a thing. Oh, I love Instagram. It's quite lovely. There right. are no
1: drunk uncles on Instagram <laughs> yet.
0: Uh, and that's at One Nation Under Whiskey or on Facebook, facebook.com slash One Under Whiskey, or just do a search. We have a, a, a podcast like group page. We do. Right? It's true. Uh, I've so... never been on it. <laughs> he's never... Show me images on your phone and yeah, I've never no, been there. No, he stays far
1: away from it. Is that all the ways to get in touch with us? I think so. So I want to say thank you to every single one of you for being in the audience this evening. It's been wonderful watching your lovely smiley faces. Uh, I would like to say thank you to Steve, Skinny, Nick, and Matt for dedicating their time on a Wednesday night. Yeah, hump day. Uh, to,
0: <laughs> Again, is, I'm not wrong. The fucking use is that? It's hump day. <laughs>
1: okay. And then Joshua... Yes. To you and to our listeners, we say cheers. Cheers.
0: Cheers, everybody. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thank you.